Hello, and welcome to Teacher in Zion podcast. Last week on Hope of Zion, our Facebook group, Gary Stevens, who's a friend of mine, posted the following. Genesis 7:23, And the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and of one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there were no poor among them. Zion has no poor among them. How shall we build that? Okay, interesting question. And there are some good comments and discussions that arose from that. What Gary is quoting from here is what the RLDS called the inspired version of the Bible. And this passage is also found in the LDS uh, Book of Moses. It is the story of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, whom the Bible says was translated or taken up into heaven. And according to this revelation that Joseph Smith got, that he wrote down and, and was later added to the new translation or inspired version of the Bible. And in this detailed account of the story of Enoch, it reveals that Enoch got a revelation of Christ, that he preached Christ and his gospel, and that all those who believed and followed those teachings gathered together and eventually built a city, which in the process of time, God called Zion. Now, there are a couple of ideas that have been expressed in regards to this account of Enoch that I would like to address. The first being that in this account in Genesis, Enoch stood before the Lord face to face. And in the book of Ether, the brother of Jared sees the Lord, that he has a body of flesh. And the idea being expressed is that because the Lord told the brother of Jared that never before has anyone had such faith, and because the brother of Jared comes after the time of Enoch, that means this account of Enoch must be false. Well, that's not actually what the book of Ether says. So I'd like to take a look at that real quick here. So in Genesis 7 of the inspired version, in verse 3, this is Enoch speaking. And it says, And it came to pass that I turned and went upon the mountain. And as I stood upon the mount, I beheld the heavens open, and I was clothed upon with glory. And I saw the Lord, and he stood before my face, and he talked with me, even as a man talketh one with another, face to face. And he said unto me, Look, and I will show unto thee the world for the space of many generations. And then over in the book of Ether, in chapter 1 of the RLDS edition of the Book of Mormon, I now have the LDS references on the screen here as well. It states, And I know... O Lord, that thou hast all power, and can do whatsoever thou wilt, for the benefit of man. Therefore touch these stones, O Lord, with thy finger, and prepare them, that they may shine forth in darkness. And they shall shine forth unto us in the vessels which we have prepared, that we will have light while we cross the sea. And it came to pass, that when the brother of Jared had said these words, Behold, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one with his finger. And the veil was taken from off the eyes of the brother of Jared, and he saw the finger of the Lord, and it was as the finger of a man, like unto flesh and blood. And the brother of Jared fell down before the Lord, for he was struck with fear. And he said unto the Lord, I saw the finger of the Lord, and I feared lest he should smite me. For I knew not that the Lord has flesh and blood. And the Lord said unto him, Because of thy faith, 
Thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood, and never has man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast. For were not so, you could not have seen my finger. Sawest thou more than this? All right, now the thing I want to point out here is that the Lord can show himself to whomever he wants to. In Genesis 7 of the inspired version, the Lord decided to reveal himself to Enoch and stand face to face. Never does the Lord say, because of thy exceeding faith, you are able to see me. But over here in the book of Ether, the brother Jared is exercising exceeding faith. First of all, because he's saying, Lord, you can do anything that you want to. And I know you could touch these stones and turn them into a light source that they will shine forth in the darkness. That's exceeding great faith. Who would imagine that God would turn stones into lamps? And so the brother of Jared proposes this to the Lord with exceeding great faith. And then the Lord begins to touch the stones. And what is the brother Jared doing? He's already made the proposal for how this will happen saying, Lord, you can touch these stones. And so he's watching these stones. And because of his great faith, he sees the finger of the Lord. Now, the Lord is never truly ever surprised. He knew that the brother Jared was going to see his finger. But the Lord did not choose to reveal himself and show himself. The Lord says here, it's because of the brother Jared's great faith that he saw his finger. Because the Lord says to him, because of thy faith, thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood. And never has a man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast. For were not so, you could not have seen my finger. Saw thou more than this? And at this point, the Lord himself chooses to reveal his whole body and appears before the brother of Jared. But it was the brother of Jared's faith that allowed him to see the finger of the Lord. Where is in Genesis 7 of the inspired version, there is no mention that Enoch was exercising faith and that that was a mechanism in which he was able to stand before the Lord and see him face to face. Another idea that has been floated that I would like to address here is the notion that because Enoch is not mentioned in the Book of Mormon, this is evidence that either his story isn't important or it isn't true. And what I would ask you to keep in mind here is that the Book of Mormon itself, though containing the fullness of the gospel or the doctrine of Christ, it does not report itself to contain all knowledge or truth or even all history. This is a history specifically of the Nephites. And the Book of Mormon tells us very specifically that it is an abridgment or a shortened version, abbreviation, of a much larger record. And that's not even including other records, including the brass plates, which Enoch may be mentioned in those. And according to the Book of Mormon, one of these days the brass plates will come forward and the whole world will see them and be able to read them. Enoch is mentioned in the Bible. In the book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it reads, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Enoch had visions of the last days and he wrote of those visions. 
Even in the New Testament, it makes mention of Enoch. In Hebrews 11.5, it says, By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Moreover, nearly every ancient culture with origins to the cradle of civilization have their own myths and traditions regarding Enoch. He was also written about on ancient clay tablets, in Jewish text, and even found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And therefore, I believe Enoch is very important, and that's why he's mentioned. And perhaps one day we'll even receive a full account of Enoch and all of his original writings in their pure state. Now getting back to the topic, never once in all of the revelations that Joseph Smith received in regards to Zion, does God ever say that the church was to build Zion. Check it out for yourself. Do a word search. At least it's not found in the RLDS version of the Doctrine and Covenants. If the LDS church has some revelation to that effect, please let me know in the comments below. But rather, every single revelation found in the Doctrine and Covenants that Joseph Smith gave says that we are to establish the cause of Zion. So what is the definition of the word cause being used here? Well, it's talking about the origin, or in other words, what caused it to come into being? So what did cause Zion? What caused the first Zion, or the Zion of the Inspired Version, or the Book of Moses, Enoch's Zion? If it is indeed a true account, and we have yet to prove that, but what is the cause of that Zion? What caused it to come to pass? Now, for me, the better litmus test on whether or not the revelation that Joseph Smith received about Enoch is true is not whether we find the story in the abridged record of the Nephites, but number one, starting with Moroni's admonition about how we can know whether something is true, states, For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that they may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you a way to judge for everything that inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. And the second litmus test I would look at is what is the cause of Zion according to the revelation that Joseph Smith got? Because you see, if the cause of Zion turns out to be becoming a member of a organization, whether secret or public, or is based on some eclectic or Gnostic teachings or through some ritual or priestcraft, then it is assuredly not from God. So what does Joseph Smith's revelation on Enoch and his city reveal about the cause of Zion? And this was a very serious question that I posed myself just recently as I re-examined my belief in the story of Enoch and the city that he and his people built found in this inspired version. I needed to know what was the cause that brought about Zion. And so if we turn to Genesis chapter 7 in the inspired version, or you can follow along in the book of Moses, it states, And the Lord said unto me, Go forth to this people, and say unto them, Repent, lest I come and smite them with a curse, and they die. So this is the words of the Lord to Enoch, 
and there's great wickedness in the land. And we have the Nephilim, the giants also, and much of mankind has fallen into great wickedness. And it goes on and says, And he gave me a commandment that I should baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son, who is full of grace and truth, and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and the Son. This is an agreement with the Book of Mormon. And it came to pass that Enoch continued to call upon all the people to repent, even as Noah did. There also came up a land out of the depths of the sea, and so great was the fear of the enemies of the people of God, that they fled and stood afar off, and went upon the land which came up out of the depths of the sea. And the giants of the land also stood afar off, and there went forth a curse upon all the people which fought against God. And this is reminiscent very much of the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant that God made with Israel. And now in verse 20, it says, And from that time forth there were wars and bloodshed among them, but the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. And the fear of the Lord was upon all nations, so great was the glory of the Lord which was upon his people. This is very reminiscent of what we read in the Book of Mormon will happen in the last days, that the power of God, the powers of heaven will fall upon his people, the church. And the Lord blessed the land, and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places, and they did flourish. And the Lord called his people Zion. Now this is interesting because I've always had Zion referred to as a city. But here it is not a city, but the people that God is referring to as Zion. And this is very much like the church. We're always trying to make the church or Zion or something to be a place or a building or an organization. But it's the people. It is the people that are the body of Christ. It is the people who are the church. It is the people he calls Zion. The city has not even been built yet. And so the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and they dwelt in righteousness and there was no poor among them. So what is the cause of Zion that we read here? Well, if you didn't catch it, the answer might surprise you. But the actual cause here is that Enoch preached Christ. He taught the gospel and the doctrine of Jesus Christ, baptized all those who would believe, and a people believing in that message to the point that they repented and lived the gospel was the actual cause of Zion. Now, I know what most people probably answered, and it's the same answer I gave originally. But the Lord had to show this to me when I was specifically asking him, what is the cause of Zion? And so going back to chapter 7, it was revealed to me that this was the actual cause before 170 years, people in the RLDS tradition look to the 23rd verse in chapter 7 of the inspired version and thought that the cause of Zion were four things. That being, they're one heart, one mind, they dwelt in righteousness, and there were no poor among them. But this wasn't the cause of Zion. It was simply the reason why God could now call them Zion. But people have always looked at these four things as if they were the ingredients. If you can get these four ingredients, then you have Zion. Well, there may be some truth to that, but we're skipping something, something very big. 
something very important. And I was one of them who didn't understand that. For years, I was looking at these four things. How do we achieve it? And because we have believed this, many different people and groups of people over the years have made valiant attempts at trying to establish Zion by living these four principles. And I have seen many of those efforts firsthand, and I know of many of those efforts through the accounts of people that I know. And I'm going to tell you that I cannot think of a single exception where those efforts did not ultimately fail or simply wane and fade out. Now, to begin with, people never could manage to remain truly one in heart and mind, not for very long anyway. And I think mostly this was feigned or they imagined they were one heart and one mind because they had some agreements. And the reason why none of these people could remain of one heart and one mind is it because such an accomplishment cannot be achieved by the natural man. Only a people that are completely transformed by Christ into a new creature, with the natural man being crucified and put to death. And to this date, I have yet to see a people who have done this. And since most do not understand righteousness or what it is, and that they think it comes by following the law, or a book of rules, or the commandments of men, these efforts to be righteous are built on a sandy foundation. And so what people invariably focus on the most, and which is also the focus of the post of my friend Gary here, is on there being no poor among them. And I have multiple friends that are involved in Zionic endeavors even now, and this is their primary focus, no poor among them, which leads to efforts to pool their money together, and have all things in common. But this isn't actually what God asked of people that I can tell. To sell all of your possessions and hand over your paycheck and properties is actually to give up the stewardship that God gave you. I believe that when we come into covenant with God, we acknowledge everything we have belongs to him. And we treat it as such. And if he tells us to go and give someone the, a vehicle or to give them money or food or assistance of some sort, then it's his business to do with the things that he owns that he gave to us to put in our stewardship. But if we give our money to someone else, we've given up our stewardship to someone else. And now God can't tell us what to do with it. If we just handed it over to somebody else or handed it over to an organization. I believe the way that having no poor among us would ultimately come about in Zion is that all those with riches would, out of love for the fellow man, use those riches to see to it that nobody goes without and make sure that everyone's needs are taken care of. Of course, monies can be pooled together to create a fund, but to completely give up stewardship of all of your resources and hand it over to a bishop, let's say, will likely result in corruption, heartbreak, and strife. And that is because we are still the natural man. We have not truly died to self yet. We have not become that new creation. And I want you to take note here that in this revelation of Enoch and the people who built this city, that it says of them that there were no poor 
among them. It does not say there were no rich among them. And once again, pooling together all of our monies, turning over properties, handing over our resources to others in order to have all things in common and set up some sort of a system so that there will be no poor among us, is doomed to failure if the people who are participating in this have not truly died to self and become a new creature in Christ with a love for all men, including their enemies. I think the essence of the error that we have made is in thinking that by being of one heart, one mind, being righteous and having no poor among us, and thinking of those as the ingredients that make up Zion, that by somehow achieving this through our efforts, that this will cause Zion to come into being. And I do not believe it will. And the reason I believe this is because these four conditions we read about are actually the natural result of a people who have been spiritually born again, transformed into a new creation. It is, in a sense then, the end result or the product of Zion, not the cause of Zion. I believe that one of the big problems that we have run into over the years is that many people in the RLDS tradition have tried to utilize these four components as if they were ingredients that would bring about Zion. But those efforts are generally doomed to failure because they're focusing on producing the end results without going through the transformation that made these things come about organically. When we examine this account of Enoch and the city of Enoch, what brought Zion about was a people not only believing, not only paying lip service to the gospel of Christ, but fully coming to Christ, surrendering everything, laying our will down, and being transformed by our interaction with the living God, dying to self and living out the gospel every hour of every day. And I think that's the essence of it. Because I've been wondering why we have not yet achieved these things. Why we do not yet walk in the powers of heaven. And why we are not yet a fully changed and transformed people. A people that are truly born again. And I believe it comes down to as simple as we have not yet died to self. Because we're still holding on to our own lives. Our own will. Our own desires. And instead, we have made compromises. We have made sacrifices and offerings. We have decided, okay, I'll go to church, or I won't smoke, or drink, or cuss. And then, because we're good people, and believe in God, we believe that should be enough. But it isn't. Like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, what he required of the young man was quite simply everything. And that doesn't mean you have to sell all your possessions, but it does mean you need to hand them over to him. Not some man, but to God. You want to buy a bigger TV? Does God say that's okay? Did you check with him? Are we checking with him about our purchases? If I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself here. Please understand. I'm contemplating these things as issues that I myself face. 
And I think we as a people face. We have our own ideas about things and we want to live our lives. Willingly laying down your life and dying is one of the most difficult things a person can do. Die to self in that we're done making decisions for ourselves according to what we want or what we think is right. And instead, turn it over to God and live only for Him. In time, there are those who will rise up, the Holy Ones of God that Enoch spoke of, the Holy Ones of God who will be endowed with power, the powers of heaven, because I give it all up to walk with Him. I'm convinced this is the only way to do it. And it is those who hunger and thirst after righteousness who will be filled. And what are we filled with? Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled with the Holy Ghost. And that is the transforming experience. I wanted to share our failures today, the failures of the RLDS people, because for many who come out of the LDS tradition, my understanding is that Zion was never that much of a focus for the LDS, or that Zion simply became another metaphor for the church itself. And so as the many thousands or tens of thousands of people begin to question and begin to come out of the various churches over the coming months and years, people who will no doubt begin to seek for Zion, it is my hope that they will learn from our failures and recognize that trying to build Zion before being transformed into a new creature in Christ truly is putting the cart before the horse. Amen. And if I haven't completely offended you yet, I hope you will join us next time. And until then, God bless.